Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Ambassador Swanee Hunt, a senior lecturer and founder of the Women in Public Policy program here at the Kennedy School. We'll be releasing a book next year entitled Rwandan Women Rising. Ambassador Hunt, thank you for joining us. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. So this year marked the 20th anniversary of the horrific genocide in Rwanda. Uh, the it killed an estimated million people um and in in the space of just a few months uh since then the country has made remarkable progress towards conciliation and i'm curious about this um you've basically discovered that in the time since one of the major changes in rwandan society has been that women have found leadership roles that they never had before. Can you explain what happened? Yes, yeah, sure. Sometimes, uh, rare times, I must say, when you have a, a disaster like a genocide, whether it's in Europe, in the Balkans, you know, in Germany, uh, wherever it is, uh, instead of just an implosion, the, the chaos cracks open the culture and you have a shift of traditional roles. And that offers an opportunity for new leadership, new ideas. In the case of Rwanda, the new leadership was women who came up from the bottom. They pushed up from the bottom, but they were also pulled up by Paul Kagame, who came in as the the general who was driving out the extremists to stop the genocide. And he was a real believer in getting all the talent that he could find and ignoring the obstacles that favored one gender or the other. So what were the traditional roles in Rwanda for women? Well, if a a woman was in the presence of men, she was not to speak. Mm -hmm. And so there were village councils all over Rwanda because it is a village, rural uh, country, economy. Uh, But women had no role in those. And at home, she was to... Well, as you might imagine, she was to work in the fields, but she was also to prepare the household, the meal. She was to make the beds of the boys. The sisters made the beds of their brothers, mm-hmm. et cetera. The boys were favored to go to school uh, in dramatically uh, different imbalance. And that was so that the girls could be at home doing the chores. And this was true all the way up to 1994? Yes, it is. Uh, Women were not allowed to inherit property, for example, which is a huge thing. Because if your husband dies, then you're a widow without any recourse. You have to look around for someone to take you in because the land all goes to the brother. Right. So... What exactly happened after the genocide that allowed, I mean, that seems like a major shift within even the space of a year. Yeah, the genocide itself was 100 days. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the genocide, it's before the genocide. Genocide doesn't spring from nothing. So you Mm -hmm. had years of pogroms and, and exoduses. There were all these exiles in the neighboring countries and Uh, In fact, it was the um, exiles in Uganda who came in with what they called the Rwandan Patriotic Front. They wanted to come home. And and meanwhile, the genocide starts, and so you have this push down from Uganda with with the exiled. uh, They were the Tutsi primarily, but also moderate Hutus. And then you have this 
this pushing out of these uh, extremist Hutus who wanted to take over the country. Mm -hmm. And the Hutus were 90% of the country. Um, So this is, there was all of this uh, crazy risk for the Tutsis to come in Mm -hmm. to try to regain a place. Uh, All of that said, the change that happened was in terms of the women. And when they pushed in, there was a lieutenant colonel named Rose Kabuya. And I'm climbing Kilimanjaro with her, in fact, in a month. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and Paul Kagame, the general, says, okay, Rose, uh, you're the mayor of Kigali, the capital. Mm -hmm. Well, Kigali was piled up with corpses. There were literally tens of thousands of little children who had no idea where their parents were. In fact, their parents had been hacked to death. So they're in the streets. There are offices, but they have no paper. They have no structure. There's no one around. Everyone's been slaughtered who had been part of any kind of structure uh, in terms of um, positions, Mm -hmm. official positions, or they had fled. And so here comes Rose, and there's no running water, you know, and she had to look around and figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and how to, what she said she found, and, and I've heard this many, many times, the men were so traumatized, the ones who were still alive. Um, it was the women who, who shook themselves out of that trauma, rolled up their sleeves, and started burying the bodies wow. and started looking for the food. And President Kagame himself told me that. Uh, so that was replicated all over the country. The women went from building families to uh, building homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they, they took charge. Mm-hmm. And that was encouraged, actually, by the top, instead of being discouraged. Mm-hmm. And the women formed women's councils so that they could speak. Mm-hmm. Because if you had a women-only council, you know, you... There wasn't any reason to hold back, and you had to right. be elected to that. And they had five tiers all the way up to the national, from the smallest village to the national. Mm-hmm. So by the time women were in the national council, they had run for office five times. Wow. And then you've got a whole different dynamic going on. So that seems in a remarkable societal shift. Um, how long did that take for for it to happen? Was it immediate or? Sub- it started immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, the genocide was April of 94. I arrived in 2000, six years in, and the women already were very, very well established. They mm-hmm. had gotten themselves on the Constitutional Commission to create a new constitution. They did consult uh, consultations with 300,000 people around the country, and they got... How a, big is the country? Uh, oh, the, well, the, the country itself is 8 million. Okay. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable. <laughs> and um, they, with the concurrence of the country, they got 30% of the seats in the new parliament set aside for women. So here's the deal, Matt. So you've got all these village councils, right, all the way up to a national level. Mm-hmm. So these women, as I said, had run for office five times. Now you've got a parliament with 30% of the seats set aside for mm-hmm. women. So hold those two thoughts. So obviously what you do is you take the women who are at the national level of the village councils, and they then fill the seats, the 30% of the seats in the, in the parliament, right? Sure. Wrong. But instead, <laughs> what they did is... Women who were underneath the National Council, let's say at a district level, it would be Uh like our states instead of the federal government. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so women were who were at that level ran for this thirty percent of the seats in the parliament. Wow. The okay. strongest women, yeah, you get where we're mm-hmm. going. The strongest women held back, mm-hmm. and they ran for the, against the men for the seventy percent of the seats. Wow. And that's how, in the very first election in two thousand three, after they created the new government. Uh, women walked away with, or they filled, I should say, 49% of the seats in the parliament. So that seems like a remarkable kind of grassroots, it, it's, it's, it's kind of basic grassroots organizing to build up the structures underneath the larger positions and then and then take those over. I'm curious, it when you kind of put it that way, it sounds like were they all part of the same party? Were they all were there differing beliefs between you know women and men, or were they actually going up against each other? How did that work? The women themselves headed up and created the Commission for Unity and Reconciliation. Now that was required by some peace talks, but it, there was no substance to it. Mm-hmm. So my friend Inumba said she lay in bed at night after being appointed to head this up uh, and thought, I don't know where to start. How on earth do you go into a country where neighbors have hacked each other to death? Mm-hmm. How, what do you do? And then she realized that what she did is to go talk to those neighbors. Mm-hmm. And she went all over the country, she and her deputy. Now she was Tutsi and the deputy was Hutu. Wow. And they were talking to majority Hutu, even though she was Tutsi, because that's who was left. The Mm -hmm. Tutsi were slaughtered. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. And she had, um, I think there were 500,000 orphans. Now, that's, that's a crisis in a country that creates insecurity. I mean, a country can go back into civil war over what you do with these 500,000 orphans. But she said she just went around saying, okay, let's see. uh, So, Rose, you have one child. Okay, now you have two. I'm giving you this one. And uh, Sabina, you already have three. Okay, well, now you have four. And Odette, you have 14. Well, now you have four more. And and then she said she would lie in bed thinking, I think I gave some Tutsi children to Hutu families. Like, what am I doing? Wow. So you have to put yourself. Wow. Um, was was that by? Yes, of by course. No, she didn't mean to. It's just or? no. She just had to distribute these kids. Wow. You just had to get them off the streets. Right. Uh, and and didn't have time to do an interview, <laughs> right. you know, a, a pre-adoption interview. But just imagine, we think of the Holocaust, right, in terms of Germans and Jews. So imagine after the Holocaust, if you go around and you're putting Jewish children in German families, just distributing them out, and knowing the, the anti-Semitism in Germany at that time, and mm-hmm. yet you're putting these little Jewish kids in their families because they've got to go somewhere. Would they have known? Would the families have known? Yeah, yeah. They mm-hmm. would have a pretty good sense. It's a tiny, mm-hmm. you know, these are tiny communities. Sure, yeah. And so even that act of what to do with the orphans became one of the actions of reconciliation in the country because right. it knit it back together. Another example, about 75% of the women had been raped. All right. Now, often gang-raped and often raped repeatedly. So these were Tutsi women who had been raped and raped and raped by Hutu militias. Many of them became pregnant. Now, this is not a society where 
you are going, you know, you're choosing whether to have an abortion or not right. for the most part. I mean, they just don't think in those terms. So you have all of these women giving birth, sometimes very young, you know, teenagers giving birth, and they are holding in their arms a child that is a product of a Hutu extremist militia who created this terribly violent act. Right. Now, what do you do with this baby? Do you bond or do you not bond? So even the act of saying, this is my child, mm-hmm. was an act of reconciliation. But that, but that's these are just two examples I could... You know, read my book when it comes out. I could give you about <laughs> sure. 20 different examples of how sure. they knit the country back together. So today, the uh, Rwandan parliament, I think it's, what, 64% yeah. female? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's first right. in the in the world. <laughs> um, do you see, I mean, obviously the circumstances that created um, this situation were terrible and um, right. can't be repeated. Right. Do you see it in any way as, do you see things in there that could be models for regional neighbors or even other, you know, countries around the world? Around the world, indeed, yes. And I was asked by a UN, UN official to write this book because she said, you know, there are, this is an indigenous model and it is filled with examples. No other country is going to be a replica. Right. But the, one of the things I do at the end of the book is to draw out six different lessons that the United States could use for that matter. You know, uh, we need to be elevating women's voices here mm-hmm. because they tend to be the more moderate voices mm-hmm. and they tend to be very, very practical. So look, we're facing climate disaster, right? Sure. So who is going to take the leadership on that? Mm-hmm. It has to be leadership, not just at a federal level, it's going to be at the the most basic town level mm-hmm. and are we thinking in terms of women's roles they women tend to be so practical uh it's true they just are and they organize they're big organizers mm-hmm. so they'll get the whole community together is there anything that that if we if we focus somehow or another as a nation on a women's core mm-hmm. to see what ideas that they could come up with that would be fascinating not that we're going to do it but sure. but women can take a lead on all kinds of issues and they do it in a in a way that's different from the men so it, in Rwanda itself um, obviously this has been going on for now 20 years yeah. is there any i mean it, i would imagine that a society that has seen that kind of change um, would become accustomed to it to the point that it couldn't really go back is there any threat that that mm-hmm. actually might have? I mean, right. is this sustainable? Right. Well, I've asked that question, certainly, because what's happened is that internally in domestic, in virtually any domestic measure, Rwanda has been leapfrogging over other countries. They started right at the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been leapfrogging over other countries with the fastest rise in terms of human security, we call them indicators, such as uh, maternal child health or AIDS or or food, etc. They've been on a meteoric rise. And the, the culture itself is really aware of women's role in that. When I ask about, do you think there'll still be quotas? People have actually forgotten that there are quotas. They are so accustomed to the leadership of women now shared with men. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Ambassador Swinney Hunt, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast. You know, I, I'm enjoying this so much. I'll have to come back sometime. Thanks, <laughs> I Matt. I will be glad to have you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Thank you.